Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you again uh, as we do week by week that you have allowed us to gather in this way. We pray that you would be amongst us as we now turn to your word. I thank you for uh, how the worship team has led us this morning, God. I pray that you've been pleased with our worship. And now, God, we turn to you to hear from you. And so I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would speak through me in this moment. I pray, God, that you would um, open your word to us such that it becomes alive. I pray that this would not just be um, an interesting message or, or speech, but it would be truly declaring the words of life. I pray that the truth of your gospel, the truth of who you are, would come through clearly and evidently in these moments. And I pray that you would speak to your people who need to hear from you this morning. I thank you that you are the living God and that... Um, our lives are in your hands. Our future is in your hands. I thank you that you are the God who loves us and serves us. And I pray, God, that we would recognize that we are having an encounter with you. Please meet with us, we ask. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to receive what it is that you have for us now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, great to be with you. So great to be with you again this morning. Uh, big thank you to Jason Johnson for preaching last week and continuing us uh, in our Back to Basics series, and we're still in it today. So we're m marching forward in the second half of our Back to Basics series. Uh, and our text for today is John, John 13, verses 1 to 17. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. I'll give you like five seconds if you got your Bible. Uh, otherwise, we'll have the text up on the screen. This is what it says. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should also, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Six years ago, the summer of 2015, I left my job. I left the company that I'd been working at for 10 years. Uh, and my wife, Beth, and I loaded up our stuff and our three kids at the time. And we moved from Ohio to Massachusetts, the Boston area, so that I could go to seminary. Uh, now, I, one of the requirements for that sem my seminary education was a thing called mentored ministry. Uh, mentored ministry just meant I needed to have four semesters of service 
in a local church or ministry. It's what the rest of the world would call an internship. And so knowing that I needed to do that, I was able to connect with the staff at the church that we were going to there in Boston, and they graciously agreed to help find a place for me to fulfill my mentored ministry requirement. Now, uh, some of you know, uh, I was 33 years old at the time. Again, I had three kids. I was a second career guy. And so I probably came into that meeting where we were going to talk about what I could do for mentored ministry at my church with a little bit higher expectations than the staff at the church had. So when I met with my mentor, I came in thinking things along the lines of, like, should I offer to preach twice a month or three times a month? And maybe we could um, film a video of me sharing my amazing journey of faith that we could upload to the website and promote to the local community. I also thought maybe I could teach the adult theology class on Sunday mornings because, as you know, I've already completed an entire semester of seminary. What we ended up deciding on was that my position or my role was going to be the adult educational adult education coordinator, excuse me, adult education coordinator, which sounded pretty good. But here's what that really meant. The adult education coordinator's primary responsibility, my main job, my only job, kind of, was to get to church early and get five or six big pots of coffee along with cups, napkins, sugars and creamers, stirrers as well, and take those and distribute them from the kitchen in the basement of the church to the five or six classrooms where they had adult education classes on Sunday mornings. That wasn't it. At the end of service, I got to stay late. And actually, after people had left those classrooms, I went and collected all of those coffee pots and cups and stirrers and napkins and creamers and sugars. And I took them back down to the basement, and I got to clean the coffee pots. I had a hard time with this. It's not because I'm some egomaniac. Well, maybe at some level I am. But again, as I had said, I was a second career guy. And, I, and you spend 10 years anywhere, and there's a pretty good chance that you're not going to be the low person on the totem pole at that time. Life for me had been flipped upside down. God had entered in, and at the time, what felt like a beautiful way, and in hindsight, what felt like a beautiful way, but in that moment in seminary, did not feel like a beautiful way. My life had been totally turned upside down. I was reeling. Now, one group of people who were pretty impressed were my kids. I will never forget uh, the first Sunday that they went with me to collect all the coffee pots and take them down into the kitchen. As we entered into the kitchen, which was kind of a staff-only area, their eyes got really wide. And as I started to wash the coffee pots, they said together, you work here with like amazement and awe in their eyes. But in that moment, I did not share their amazement and awe because here I was, 33 years old, three kids, Felt like I was starting my life over. This grand vision I had had of God calling me out of my old life, of blowing it up and taking me on an adventure of ministry and service for him. And here I was, that great adventure was me washing coffee pots in the basement where no one could even see that I was doing it. I, could remember, I can remember so clearly still driving home from church on Sunday afternoons in that season, leaving the city of Boston, heading to our little rental on the North Shore, our kids falling asleep in the back of the van, and me just thinking to myself, this is what I left everything for, to wash coffee pots? What I probably knew in my heart at that time but didn't want to accept, and what I can see now in hindsight is that even in the midst of that, God was at work. 
God was teaching me something through that. God was breaking me through that. But God was teaching me in that moment what I believe is the, the central lesson of what his kingdom is all about. Now, I think it's next weekend actually marks one year since we have met together in our church. It's been a year since this virus has shut the world down. And this has been a year, and we've talked about it a lot over the last year. This has been a year that has felt like life has been turned upside down for so many of us. This is a year where at some point or another, virtually all of us have felt like we are reeling. And there is one area of life that has been so impacted. There's a lot of areas of life that have been so impacted by what has happened this past year. But there's one area of life that has just faced trauma this year. And that is the area of relationships. Relationships have been under assault this past year. I don't care what kind of relationship it is. If it's work relationships with your boss or your employees or your teammates, it has been under attack. If it's uh, friendships anywhere from your neighbor or your acquaintance to the lifelong soulmate, friendships have suffered through this last season and family relationships have suffered through this season. Parents and kids, kids and their parents, siblings with each other and so much so marriages. Marriages, it feels like they have been under attack over this past year. Life has been turned upside down and we're all reeling and we are really feeling it in the area of relationships. This whole used to go apart for the day and reconvene at dinner allowed us to kind of keep a lot of things under the surface that now that we're all together all the time, things are being brought up that always existed, but we didn't have to actually face. It has been a hard season for relationships. And I do, do you know what I think it is teaching us? I believe we are being taught that we don't like to wash coffee pots. For some of us, that's actually very literal, right? We have been home and it's like, we're sitting at the kitchen sink and again, cleaning the same stuff. And it's like, is there anyone else in this house who is able to clean this pot? But mostly it's just been figurative because I will say this, whatever the relationship it is, whether it's work or family or school or teammates or, or, or friends, there are coffee pots that need to be washed. And none of us really likes to wash the coffee pots. We're continuing today in our Back to Basics series. And uh, we're rooting this again in Acts chapter 4. The first half of this series, we looked at what does it look like to be with Jesus? Because Peter and John, in that passage, it is so obvious to others that they have been with Jesus. And so we looked at the basics of being in God's word and spending time with him in prayer. And here in the second half of our Back to Basics series, we are looking at how does that actually get played out in real life? How does our being with Jesus, how does our following with Jesus, how does following Jesus, how does our communing with Jesus actually affect the way we live our lives? How does it become obvious to others? And so for the last two weeks, we looked at this thing called discipleship, which is this idea of personal transformation, that when we are with Jesus, we do not stay the same. We actually change. And, uh, and now, this week and next week, we're going to look at the area of probably what is the most important to all of us in our lives, and that is the area of relationships. I want to spend just a couple of weeks looking at how does our being with Jesus, what are the basics that that plays out as in, in our relationships. And, and this is a, a timely moment to talk about relationships because this has been a really hard year for relationships. And I believe we find in our text today the most basic of basics when it comes to what God has to say, what God teaches us 
about how to do godly and healthy relationships. Now, I think it's the most basic, but it also might be the most challenging. So as we turn to the text, I just want to remind us of the context, which I think highlights how important the lessons are that we're going to draw out of this text are. See, Jesus and his disciples are having dinner together. This is what's known as the Last Supper. They're in the upper room. Jesus has been walking with his disciples. He's been discipling his disciples for around three years now, living together, eating together, working together, doing ministry together, playing together, relaxing together. And all through that time, he has been teaching them. He's been teaching them. He's been talking to them. He's been giving them object lessons. He's been, been, he's been giving them parables. And all of that comes to a, a culmination in the scene that we find here. This is their last moments of peace together. This is the last this is the last thing before he goes to the cross. And Jesus does not shut it down and say, hey, let's have, a, let's have just a quiet, enjoyable evening together. He saves his best for last. This lesson that he teaches them in John chapter 13, it is the culmination. It is the capstone. It is the senior seminar of their time with him that draws together everything that he has taught them. And what is that? Well, when we turn to our text, I want to point out one thing that we find right off the bat. Chapter, or verse 1 says that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, and then it says this funny phrase, he loved them to the end. Now, there's some debate among scholars about what that actually means. And, and while that's a good translation, but it's a little bit confusing, there are other English translations, and this is still true to what the, the Greek says, it could also be translated as he showed them the full extent of his love. I think that's an amazing summary of what we see happening, what I just read in John chapter 13, that this, in this act, Jesus shows the disciples how fully and how deeply he loves them. And so what we learn from that, what we take from that, is that in God's kingdom, when it comes to relationships, love and service go hand in hand. We show our love by our serve, by our serving, and we serve to show our love. It is the most basic of basics, but it's not easy to do. So Jesus makes clear what he does in this passage, I just read it, is an example for his disciples to follow. And, and by extension, that means an ex it's an example for us to follow as well. And so I want to just draw out a few characteristics, a few characteristics of what this service, what this love that Jesus shows for his disciples looks like, and think about what that might mean for us today. So the first one is this. The first characteristic that I want to draw out from this scene of Jesus washing his disciples' feet is this. In God's kingdom, his love and his service is shocking. Love and service in God's kingdom are shocking. It is shocking. Let me help set the scene. So here's Jesus and the disciples. They're about to enjoy the Last Supper together, though probably most of the disciples don't recognize that this is going to be their Last Supper together. And just as they're sitting down to the meal, though in that time they wouldn't have actually been sitting down, they would have more likely been reclining next to a low table on their left elbows. Right as the meal is about to get started, Jesus stands up. All eyes are on him. And we're told in verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments. Now the fact that garments is plural is actually really critical. It's really important to help us understand what is going on here because more than likely, Jesus was wearing three articles of clothing, probably his disciples too. He would have had an outer garment, like a robe. He would have had an inner garment that would have been like a full-length t-shirt that sat against his sin, skin, excuse me, Jesus had no sin, sat against his skin 
and then he would have had a, a loincloth. Uh, his, it would have been his drawers. I mean, not, not to be too base, but, uh, but three articles of clothing. And so when John tells us in verse 4 that he laid aside his outer garments, what that seems to imply is that he took off both his robe and his undergarment. So here he is in that upper room, standing there in front of his 12 disciples, wearing only a loincloth. And in that society, in that culture, there was one class of people who dressed like that. There was one class of people who only wore one of those three items of clothing, and it was the lowest servants and slaves. So here comes Jesus. He, he literally is undressing in front of his disciples to the point that he looks like the lowest of the servants, the lowest of the slaves in that society. And you can only imagine what the disciples were doing in that moment, cutting sideways glances at each other. Like the, the, the palpable idea of awkward was just probably hanging over everything and they're thinking in their heads, though probably not saying it, what is he doing? And then he goes and gets a basin and a pitcher. And he starts moving around the room, washing his disciples' feet. He takes on the form of a slave and starts doing the lowest job. There's a lot of extra biblical literature that actually suggests that even Jewish servants were not expected to wash people's feet. That was reserved for the Gentile servants. It is safe to assume that the act of washing feet it was as gross and demeaning back then as it would be now. And here is Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords. He is dressed like a servant in only a loincloth and he is moving around the room washing his disciples' feet. In an honor and shame culture, this would have been shocking. Now, there are some scholars, there's actually a number of scholars that I saw looked at this week who believe that this was a reactive move on Jesus' part. They suggest that perhaps there was a servant who was supposed to come and didn't show up or that maybe even this was a test for his disciples where Jesus had set out the pitcher and the basin knowing no servant was coming to wash feet and he was just going to wait and see if any of them actually took the initiative to humble themselves and wash each other's feet. And when nobody did that, he kind of said, well, okay, if no one else is going to do it, I guess I'll get up and do it and teach these guys a lesson. With all due respect, I couldn't disagree more with that interpretation because I believe we see in this moment the very nature of who Jesus is. And I just, I can't help but wonder if the disciples in that moment remembered what he had told them, what Matthew records him telling them back in Matthew 20, 28, when he said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And here is the Son of Man taking on the, the form of the lowliest servant, doing what they would have never have ever expected him to do. And it would have been shocking. This act of love and service was shocking to them. Jesus was the original undercover boss. I, I literally can't believe I'm comparing him to that TV show, but some of you will remember that TV show, Undercover Boss, where it took the CEO or the president of a large company, a large corporation, and, and, and dressed them up, hid their identity, and they went to work for a few days with the lowest, uh, lowest levels of employees in their organization. And that show always had a reveal at the end. And, the, and the, the, the excitement of the reveal part of that show was what? It was the shock. It was the shock when these low-level employees realized that this, oftentimes this knucklehead they'd been working with who couldn't even do the, the simplest of jobs was actually the CEO or the president of that company. There is something, there was something, people love that show because there was something about the, the leader, the top dog, the one who is used to having people work for him or her, 
humble themselves and look to serve rather than be served. And if I can just bring this home today, I want to say this. Do you know what I think is the number one reason for relational strife, for relational issues, whether it's in COVID or outside of it? It is when one or both people in a relationship are looking to be served rather than to serve. Now, some of you might be saying that's an oversimplification, and perhaps it is. But I, I think there's a pretty strong case that can be made that when, when one or both people in a relationship decide that they don't want to wash the coffee pots, that they are looking for the other person to wash the coffee pots, that is, that is da- a dangerous place for a relationship to go. That is walking out on thin relational ice with uh, a relationship. So if you are wrestling, if you are struggling, if, if there's a relationship in your life, even today, where you are having strain and strife and difficulty, here's the first thing I think we can take from this passage. Here's the first thing you can do to work towards, towards changing the culture of that relationship. It is shock them. Not literally. I, I, I know someone right now is heading out to the garage to warm up the jumper cables. That is not at all, not at all what I am saying. The, the, the example that Jesus gives us in this passage is an example of love and service that is shocking to the ones that he performs it for. And so, so, so if we want to love others well, if we want to serve others well, if we have a relationship that is not where it is right, where, where we want it to be right now, I think the first thing that we can do is do something for that person that will shock them initiate something. Nobody asked Jesus to do this. No one expected him to do it. Do something that no one's asking you to do, that, that, that the other person's not expecting you to do. Do something so humble and so below your station in life that it shocks them the level of kindness and service that they see when you do it for them. I don't know what that is. And that can be for your boss, for your employee, for your kids, for your spouse. But if you are looking to jumpstart a relationship, I think the first characteristic we pull from this passage is shock them. All right, here's the second one. And it kind of is like 1.1a. It, it, it's number, point number two, but really it, it follows really closely on point number one, and it is this. Uh, the next characteristic of the love and service that Jesus shows in this passage is that it's confusing. It's confusing. We see it in Peter's response, don't we? We see it in Peter's response as we continue moving through this text. Here is Jesus on his hands and knees in a loincloth, shuffling around from disciple to disciple, taking in his hands, the hands of God, taking in his hands their filthy, smelly feet that are covered in dirt and who knows what else, and bunions and ingrown toenails and washing them with his hands and drying them with the towel that is wrapped around his waist. I do not know for sure, but my guess is that it was silent in that upper room as this was happening. I think it was silent in that upper room. And I think every one of those disciples was feeling two feelings, shame and horror. I think they were horrified that Jesus Christ was washing their feet. And I think they were, they were sh- full of shame that they had not been the ones to get up and do it for him. And he gets to Peter and Peter, as so often he does, whether it's out of courage or stupidity, He speaks up and what Peter says, I have no doubt was probably he was speaking for everyone. He was the only one who was willing to actually say it. And Jesus gets to Peter and in verse six, it says this, Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. 
Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus, in so many words, basically says, if you don't let me do this, we are not good. I know this is confusing to you. I know it doesn't make sense. But you must let me do this for you so that our relationship can be good. If I don't do this for you, then we're not on good terms. And so Peter's like, all right, go ahead, because that's what's most important to me. Jesus is like, I know it's confusing, but you have to accept this love and this service. This, the, the, the love and the service that Jesus exemplifies in this passage, it's not only shocking, it's confusing for those who receive it. I was listening to a pastor a little bit ago talk about an experience he had in his church, and I thought it illustrated this point so well. He said in, in one season in his church, he had two separate people, two visitors come to his church who he'd never met before, and each of them gave the same reason that they were visiting his church. They both told him that their boss went to that church, and I don't think it was the same boss. I think it was two separate bosses, and as he's telling the story, I'm like, yeah, well, that, that would make sense. If you don't, you know, if your boss goes to a church, it could be a good career move to, to go check out that church with your boss. Uh, but he said neither of them were believers in Jesus. But he said they both told him essentially the same reason that they had come to visit his church, and it was this. They said, uh, both of them said, over my career, I've had a lot of instances where I have done something good and my boss has taken the credit for it. And we all know that that's not uncommon, unfortunately. Uh, we do something good and our boss takes the credit for it. But both of them said the same thing. They both said, never in my career have I made a mistake. Have I been the one in the wrong? And my boss has taken the blame for it. And both of them were like, I, I'm so confused by that. I had to find out what it is that makes this person tick because I've, I've never had someone do that for me before. And I just love the picture that it paints because it is so counter to everything that our world teaches and preaches at us. For their boss to have taken the blame for the mistake that they made, can you imagine what their response probably was in that moment when they found that out? It was probably a lot like Peter. It was probably like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. That's not right. And do you know what their boss's response probably was? I don't know this for sure, but probably something along the lines of what Jesus says here. You don't understand, but someday you will. You have to let me do this for you. See, most of this sermon, most of this sermon, 80% of this sermon, and hopefully you're getting this point already, 80% of this sermon is uh, we need to serve like Jesus calls us to serve in this passage. But here, for the next two minutes, I'm just going to talk about the 20% or maybe the 10% of this sermon that is not getting at that. Because there is a segment of us, there's a segment of those of us watching this. I am not one of these people, but I know several of them intimately well. There are some of us that it actually is more natural for us to serve than to be served. Again, that is not me. I, I'm more than happy to be served. But there are some of us who have a lot more Peter in us than we would like to admit. And whenever someone tries to love us, whenever someone tries to serve us, whenever we're confused about how kind someone is being, our natural reaction, not mine, your natural reaction is no, 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 no. You'll, you can never serve me like that. But the takeaway from this text is that for those of us who are, for those of you who are wired that way, you must allow yourself to be served. Most of us, we need to do a better job of serving. We need to love people and serve people well. But there are some of us who need to allow others to actually serve us. Because when we don't, when we are always the one serving, when we are always the one uh, uh, do, dying to ourselves for others, 
We actually rob them of the opportunity to do what Christ calls us to in this text. We rob them of the opportunity to live like Christ and serve us in a shocking and confusing way. So service like this, love like this, it is shocking. It is confusing. And sometimes it is hard to be served like this, but we need to allow others to love us. If a relationship is going to work the way God has intended for it to work, both parties need to be loving and serving each other. It's a dance. It's a back and forth. And so sometimes, even if we're confused, even if we're uncomfortable, we have to allow ourselves to be served. So this kind of love and service that Jesus teaches us about in this passage, it's shocking, it's confusing. And then the last thing that it is, is it is deadly. It is deadly. This kind of love and service that Jesus is showing us in this passage is deadly. I just imagine that Jesus works his way around the room and he finishes washing all, all 12 disciples' feet. The, the silence is so thick. You can hear a pin drop. He puts down the bowl and the pitcher. He puts back his clothes on. He puts on his outer garments. He takes his place back at the table and they're all looking at him. And, and he get, we get to verse 14 and 15. Jesus says to them, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you, done to you, excuse me. Jesus is saying, what I've just done, I want you to turn around and do that for others. But here's the thing. Nearly every scholar I read, nearly every reference I read, nearly everything I read in studying for this passage, nearly everyone agrees that in this moment, Jesus is not only talking about washing feet, do you remember just a few verses earlier when Peter says, you're not going to do this for me? And Jesus says, afterward, you will understand. Jesus is not talking in this moment about just washing feet. Jesus is talking in this moment about what is going to happen the next day when he is going to go to the cross. You see this scene in the upper room at the Last Supper. This is a precursor. This is an appetizer. This is a setup for what is going to come the next day. And the reason that Jesus says, you have to let me do this for you, is this. He is saying, if you cannot accept a God who will humble himself to wash your feet tonight, how will you ever accept a God who will humble himself to death, even death on a cross tomorrow? When Jesus calls them to do as I have done for you, that is not only a call to serve, it is a call to die. It is a call to join him in dying because the only way, the only way they could possibly turn around and love each other this way, the only way they could possibly turn around and serve each other this way is if they die to themselves. I wonder again if they thought of Matthew 20, 28, which I quoted earlier, but I didn't finish the whole verse. It says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus came as a servant. A servant does not have his or her own life. Their ser the servant belongs to somebody else. I love the way one of the scholars I read this week talked about what is happening in this moment. He said this, the form of God was not exchanged for the form of a servant. It was revealed in the form of a servant. God is a God who serves 
God is a God who loves through serving and serves through loving. And Jesus is saying to his disciples in this moment, you are to serve, you are to love in the same way that I serve. You're to be a servant like I am a servant. And the only way you are ever possibly going to be able to do that is if you join me in dying to yourself. This type of love, this type of service, it is deadly. Uh, There was a Scottish prisoner of war in World War II. His name was Ernest Gordon. And he wrote a book called, after his experience as a prisoner of war, called Miracle on the River Kwai. That's not not actually what it was originally titled. The title, it it was changed to that later on. Miracle on the River Kwai. It's the same same scenario as a bridge over the River Kwai, same setting. He uh, He was part of the prisoner of war camp that was tasked with building the Burma Siam Railroad. It was a brutal experience. It's estimated that uh, nearly 400 men died for every one mile of track that was laid. They suffered under incredible heat, insects, diseases in the jungle, incredible lack of food, incredible lack of water. Um, On top of that, the the brutality of the guards and the captors who were holding them uh, as prisoners of war. And what Ernest Gordon says is those conditions all came together to create a culture in that POW camp of every man for himself. He says that the prisoners treated, them, treated each other as, off, as terribly as the guards treated them. They, 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 they beat each other and they stole from each other and they, they watched each other die without doing anything to help them. He said, he said that camp was full of selfishness hatred and fear. One day, at the end of the workday, as they were cleaning up the tools, uh, one of the guards announced that a shovel was missing. And he began to become enraged, shouting for someone to admit who had stolen the shovel. And when no one would step forward, he began shouting, all die, all die. They were going to kill everyone because someone had stolen a shovel and wouldn't admit it. And an unnamed prisoner of war, an unnamed young man, stepped out from the line as he was shouting, all die, all die. And that guard beat him to death with the butt of his rifle on the spot. What happened when they got back to camp was they counted the tools again and they realized there had been a miscount. There was no missing shovel. And when news of that event spread throughout the camp, Ernest Gordon says it transformed the culture in that camp. When those POWs learned that an innocent man had laid down his life in order to save everyone else. It transformed the way they looked at each other and looked at themselves. Does that sound familiar? It transformed the relationships in that camp and it went from a camp of selfishness, hatred, and fear to one of love and kindness and service because someone had been willing to die for the rest of them. This passage in John chapter 13, this call of Jesus to do as I have done for you. This is not a call to take out the trash when it's not your turn. It is not a call to make the bed even though it's not your day and you don't feel like doing it. It is not even a call to buy an expensive, extravagant gift. All of those things are good things and they are part of it. But this call in John chapter 13 for those who are followers of Jesus, is, to, is, it, is it is a call to die. It is a call to die to ourselves in order to live for something greater. We cannot love other people this way. We cannot serve other people this way. 
while we are still hanging on to our pride and our selfishness and our self-centeredness. I love, 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 love the way Dallas Willard says it. He says, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we would join him. This is a call to die to ourselves in order to love and serve those that God has put around us. Now, for those of you who are like, that sounds a little bit harsh. That sounds a little bit extreme. Can I remind you what the rest of this book teaches us? And that it is this, that the one who saves his life will lose it, but that the one who loses his life for God's sake will find it. The message of the gospel is finders, losers, losers, keepers. It is when we lay down our life that we actually find it. Ephesians 5.28 says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Do you hear what that is saying? When you love your wife, you're actually doing what is good for you too. And we can extrapolate that verse out to, I believe, any relationship in our sphere. She who loves her husband loves herself. He who loves his kids loves himself. She who, who loves her parents loves herself. He who loves his boss loves himself. She who loves her employees loves herself. This is a call to die to ourselves and love others. And the promise of God's word is that when we die to ourselves, when we join Jesus on the cross, that is when we actually find our life. It is a call to die. But watch how when you die to yourself, you will actually come alive. This kind of love, this kind of service, it is deadly. Now, uh, let's finish with this. I know that there are some watching right now and you are like, Pastor Gary, that sounds great. Uh, it's, in theory, it sounds great. Uh, I can see in the text where I think you're drawing that out. I think, you know, that makes sense. But you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my son. You don't know my daughter. You don't know my mom. You don't know my dad. You don't know my neighbor. You don't know my boss. You don't know this person that works for me. They don't squeeze the toothpaste the right way. They don't, they don't replace the toilet paper when they use the last square. They've said hurtful things to me. They don't treat me the way I think I should be treated. I, I, I just, I can't serve them like this. They're killing me. I like to imagine what the scene was like in that upper room the night before Jesus washed his disciples' feet like this. I assume, uh, I, I like to imagine at least, that Jesus, the good host that he was, got there a little bit before the disciples did to make sure that everything was in order. And, and so I imagine that there he is in the upper room and he's uh, making sure everything's in order before the guests arrive. And, and, and once he gets to a place where he's happy with the seating arrangements and, um, and how the hors d'oeuvres are set out, um, and, and I imagine he's got a few minutes before the, the guests, the disciples are scheduled to arrive. And I imagine him sitting down for a few quiet moments and the gravity the weight of what was about to happen just beginning to settle on him. Imagine him glancing at the door and seeing there by the door the, the pitcher of water and the basin. And I imagine him beginning to talk with God, his father. And God, his father, saying to him, Jesus, now remember, remember what the plan is. Remember what we're going to do tonight. And Jesus responding and saying, yes, I remember. Are we still going to do that? And God, the father says, yes. And, and Jesus says, for all of them? And God the Father says, yes. Even him? Yes. Really? Yes. But God, Father, Abba, Dad, he's killing me. Wash his feet too. 
You see, earlier in John's gospel, John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says something. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. What Jesus is doing in this moment is who God is. He is revealing who God is. Jesus did not exchange his glory for the form of a servant. He revealed who God is. He is a God who serves those who would kill him. He is a God who loves those who would kill him. Even Judas, even you, and even me. Because you see, we are all Judas. And if God has done this for us, how can we not turn around and do it for those who are around us? Wash their feet. God, this is a hard, this is a hard lesson. This is a hard text. This is a hard, this is a hard word, God. Who can receive it? We can't do this on our own. We can't do for others as you have done for us unless it is literally your power working inside of us to do it. And so we ask that you would make that manifest today. This has been a hard season for relationships, God. I pray that for those of us who call you Lord of our life, for those of us who are your children, I pray, God, that you would give us the the longing, the desire, and the courage to every day lay down our lives, lay down our pride, and take on the humble form of a servant to love and serve in shocking and a confusing way those that you have put around us. We want, to, we, want to, we want to run this race well that you have put before us. And part of that is walking in relationship with others. Help us. Help us to love others the way that you have loved us. We cannot do it unless you do it through us. We pray all of this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, I just want to say one more thing uh, before we wrap up this service. I know this has gone long already and some of you are like, is this dude ever going to stop talking? I will, soon. Um, I thought long and hard. I prayed about um, where and if I should put what I'm about to say somewhere in the body of my sermon um, and I decided I thought it would be best just to, to say what I want to say here uh, right at the end um, after I preached it. This has, been a, this has been a hard year in a lot of ways. I know We, we all know that. Um, it's been hard on relationships, as we just talked about. Uh, the, the, the rates of mental health illness and depression have just skyrocketed. And, and another thing that has skyrocketed that we know is the rates of uh, abuse over this last year. And uh, I just want to say the last thing I would ever want someone ever to get out of the sermon that I just preached or out of the, the, the story that, that Jesus gives us in, or that John gives us in John chapter 13 is that in some way, shape, or form, someone who is being abused is called to, to just love and serve the person who is abusing them. The church does not have a great track record of standing up and standing with people who have been abused. And so I just want to say this as clearly as I can. There is a difference between two people who are, who are sinful people and are, are working their way through life, trying to do the best they can, and abuse. I know sometimes that line is, is gray or fuzzy, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes abuse is clear. And if you are experiencing abuse, physical, m- mental, sexual abuse, God's call is not for you to just love and serve the person who is doing that to you. The, God's heart, I believe, my heart, the heart of this church, Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, is that with, with every possible option, 
you would, you would be able to get out of that situation. And so uh, please hear my heart when I say this. I am not going to qualify every sermon like this, uh, but I felt like this one needed to say something. The, if, if you are experiencing abuse, this church exists to, to know Jesus and to make him known and to help those who are in need. We, have a, we are a church, this body is full of people, I could rattle their names off right now, who live to love and serve others and to help those who are in need. So if, if you need help, we are here. You can reach us at info at alcf.net. That doesn't go to a bunch of people, it goes to one person. We exist to help those in need. And I just wanted to make that clear on the heels of the message that I just preached. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you are prayed for and you are sent.